G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and welcome to Lockdown, Character Strengths and Silver Linings, your guide to applying positive psychology in seclusion. I'm joined again today by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey. Dad, good to be chatting with you on the podcast again today. Good to be with you again, Rowan. Now, today we've called today's episode Expunging Anxiety and... We're not 100% happy with that title. I mean, this is potentially going to give everyone out there a little bit of an insight into what we get up to before the episodes, but we just thought after talking about nothing but the bloody title for 15 minutes, we better just pick something and go on with it. And I was pretty happy with expunging for the sound of it, but you're quite right. Well, one of the problems with expunging, well, here's the dictionary definition. Apparently, expunging is to obliterate or remove completely something unwanted or unpleasant. Now, that sounds pretty good, the idea of eliminating anxiety, obliterating it, removing it completely, but that's where we get into problems, which is the same reason why we gave up on the idea of executing anxiety, <laughs> exiting anxiety, expelling anxiety, but, but expunging, I reckon, sounds pretty good. But the problem with trying to get rid of anxiety completely or eliminate it is that's where many people with anxiety problems run into the greatest difficulty. Because the biggest problem when people are suffering from anxiety is actually the anxiety about the anxiety. It's feeling fearful of it. It's feeling very distressed about it. It's thinking, hey, I shouldn't be anxious. I should be feeling a lot better than this. And in people's expectations that they not feel anxious, then it means that any panic or anxiety they do feel is far more difficult and distressing to them. So a whole lot of therapy with people with anxiety is about learning to tolerate anxiety. And once people get in the mindset of looking to bear with anxiety, muddle through with it, find different ways of maybe easing it a bit but being able to tolerate it, that's when things tend to turn around. Well, hopefully learning a little bit more about anxiety today will help people to tolerate it a little bit more because I suppose even before COVID-19, anxiety is something that's almost become a bit of a buzzword in recent times. I know certainly with my age group, it's something that's just so prevalent. You sort of see it in so many people and everyone has their own sort of experiences with it, whether it be themselves or their friends. So today we want to get into some of the more positive ways of dealing with anxiety because As we've spoken about on the podcast before, positive psychology has changed our understanding of anxiety a little bit, hasn't it? Yes, it it adds something extra. There's still many worthwhile things about traditional ways of looking at dealing with anxiety, such as relaxation techniques, uh, mindfulness, which positive psychology has taken on as as well. But where positive psychology is very good is emphasising that if we can also bolster our positive emotions, as we'll talk about later, bolstering our positive emotions rather than just trying to reduce our negative emotions is also a very good way of helping deal with stress. So for everyone out there at the moment who may be experiencing their own set of challenges, what's a quote-unquote normal level of anxiety? Because what could be considered a normal level of anxiety now is maybe different to something that was six months ago. So at what point should we start really feeling alert to the levels of anxiety that we're feeling as something that really should be addressed? 
Okay, look, that is a really good question because we do have quite individual levels of anxiety and, and, and like different thresholds or tolerance levels, if you like. And it's natural to give ourselves a little bit leeway to be experiencing a bit more at the moment because we are experiencing more stress. And stress basically means when you're adjusting to a different kind of situation that calls you to have to adapt more than usual. But you're getting across the point here about it being relative. And and this is a, look, it's a disturbing thing to think about. But as Martin Seligman, a founder of positive psychology, described in the past that the average adolescent these days feels about the same level of anxiety as people who used to be hospitalised in the 1950s. Now, that's a remarkable thing in, in, like, say, half a century It's natural for young people to have a much greater level of anxiety than in the past. And that might be because we've become more reflective in our lives. And look, it's partly even the rise of psychology. People are more likely to reflect and things like that. And there's some costs to that as well. But it does come back to some individual differences. So the general principles still would be similar in that it really depends on when we're experiencing such a level of distress that it's really impacting on our enjoyment of life and also our functioning. If we find we can't function as well in our work, in our leisure activities, in our relationships, so it's really impacting on our life in our feelings, so it's very difficult to tolerate, or it's impacting on our functioning, when we find it disruptive to that extent, then it's certainly worth looking to do something about it. But we can also be proactive. I suppose positive psychology is also getting in first and looking at a preventative aspect by bolstering our well-being generally. Well, I was reading an interesting article the other day that was talking about this idea, I believe it's called re-entry syndrome. So this uh, psychologist who works with people who isolate in Antarctica, and they sort of have this saying apparently that going to Antarctica is hard, but coming home is harder. And I suppose there's almost an element at which we're all on one level in Antarctica at the moment in the sense that we're all sort of feeling a little bit more isolated. There has been a period of adjustment, but we do have to recognise that there's potentially a period of readjustment coming up as well. So I think some of these strategies and particularly some of the stuff from positive psychology, as you say, getting proactive on the front foot, I think it's going to be really important to tap into some of that stuff, recognising that we are potentially facing some more challenges ahead as well. Yeah, look, that's interesting, that Antarctica anecdote that you're describing there, and it makes sense. I remember years ago, a good friend of ours, Jill, who you know as well, she was a psychologist who spent three months in Antarctica, and part of it was to help people in terms of relationships. You know, people are adapting to being away from loved ones and all the rest of it, and, and some people might even have relationships when they're there that could make a big difference to how they could function in their everyday work. But then, you know, people might have adapted to being on their own for a period of time and when they come back in their family setting then that's another adjustment any adjustment like we said before tends to lead to stress can add to anxiety in some way so actually when I think about that too the adjustment will be a lot to do with our relationships There'll be something different in our relationships of spending more time together, maybe being cooped up a little bit more, less scope to do separate kind of activities and things like that. So it's natural that tensions can be a little bit higher, like we talked about in that episode three, quelling quarrels in quarantine. And um, yes, I think that'll be part of the adaptation for people in Antarctica as well, dealing with the adjustments in their relationships. 
Well, we'll get into the character strengths a little bit later on in the episode, but I think that's where the character strengths can really come in as an enhancer to those relationships. And and even just having a little bit more understanding of other people's character strengths can, I think, potentially just make that whole adjustment period easier. But one thing I'm interested in is the different types of anxiety, because there's different types of anxiety, isn't there? Well, I suppose as psychologists and seeing people in a private practice setting, we would use diagnoses when we see people with anxiety problems. For example, there's panic disorder. When people have significant panic attacks, that might be 2 or 3% of the population, for example, at any one time. And for half of those people, it would be very severe and debilitating to the point where a number of people will develop agoraphobia and be fearful of driving or going into a crowded place or a supermarket lest they have a panic attack and find it hard to get away. So that's one of the most common presentations. There's also social anxiety where people are very concerned about disapproval and might tend to avoid social situations or feel very anxious when they're there. And then there's, say, health anxiety, where people are fearful of becoming ill, and we can see how that's especially relevant at the moment, as are certain forms of obsessive-compulsive disorder. For example, if people have a fear of contamination and might wash their hands very frequently and that can also relate to a notion of a germ phobia. So I think when people have health anxiety, also those forms of obsessive compulsive disorder where people are concerned about contamination, that's where people are likely to have an extra level of distress predictably during lockdown. And so you mentioned they're diagnosing people with anxiety But what's the difference between an anxiety diagnosis and someone just sort of feeling anxious? Well, look, it's partly a matter of degree and there's an element of subjectivity. But again, when we define something as a clinical condition that's diagnosable, it means either there's a very significant level of distress and or it impacts on someone's functioning like their relationship or work functioning, to the point where it really interferes with their everyday life in a significant way. So to some extent, there's a degree of subjectivity in that. And uh, there can be a downside in overdiagnosing as well. Like if we just label people too readily, then that almost can make it worse because people aren't just then dealing with the anxiety they're experiencing, but there's this kind of extra stigma, if you like, of of slapping a label on it. So it's partly to do with degree, but I think that the benefit at times, if we use diagnosis in an enlightened way, is it's a shorthand for describing the types of characteristic symptoms that cluster together with the different types of anxiety that we've described. And we often hear about the link between anxiety and depression. So how are they related? Well, there's actually a lot of overlap between anxiety and depression. Depression, which we'll talk about in the next podcast episode. But with anxiety and depression, there's a lot of overlap in terms of stress and the impact on people's lives. There'll tend to be overlapping symptoms. Some of the most common stress-related symptoms are problems with sleep, difficulty with concentration, feeling irritable, Uh, With anxiety, it tends to impact physically and somatically. It often will affect people's gut in certain ways. With depression, more the negative thoughts. But how I tend to think about it is anxiety relates particularly to a perception of threat and depression relates particularly to a perception of loss. So sometimes there's a sequential relationship. At first, people can feel the threat 
Well, including with COVID, people can be fearful. What if I lose my job? What if I get sick or one of my loved ones gets sick? What if something goes terribly wrong? There's that anxiety that there tends to be at first. And if things do go wrong or people feel very helpless with a prolonged threat, but certainly if things do go wrong and people lose their job or lose their business or they find that their well-being is so impacted that they've lost their sense of quality of life, then that's when people are more likely to experience depression. So does that mean that anxiety always leads to depression? Uh, not necessarily, because people can be experiencing panic attacks. And if they have a good understanding of what it is and realise that uh, maybe it's their body and mind's reaction to being triggered, for example. They might see a reminder of a situation, for example, if they might have had a car accident. And uh, if they see reminders, like they used to have TAC ads that would warn people about the threat of accidents, for example, and that would trigger a number of people to feel very anxious. But they wouldn't necessarily become depressed. People are more likely to become depressed if they feel helpless, a sense of loss, helplessness, they've lost their functioning over a period of time, their sleep's more disrupted, um, hard to think straight over a period of time, and that can build. So anxiety, if it persists, will often lead on to depression, but it doesn't necessarily need to. Whereas, say, if people are depressed, then almost by definition they're experiencing quite a degree of anxiety as well. So is there anything that, I suppose, as a psychologist that you say to people or that you kind of instruct people to kind of do and think about to avoid getting to that point of depression? Well, like just say if people start with anxiety, yes, there, there would be. So people don't just get stuck with it to go on with depression. And look, it relates to this. I generally describe to people when they come with any problem, they see me as a psychologist, they, they, they come with a problem and I generally say to people, look, when you see a psychologist with a problem, generally you've got two problems. The first one is the problem that you're seeking help with. It might be anxiety or relationship problem or trauma reaction or whatever. But then the second problem that people typically have is their reaction to the first, which can be feeling anxious about being anxious or ashamed of having a trauma reaction or feeling anxious about being depressed or feeling depressed about being anxious. Like People tend to have a reaction to having a problem, like say panic attacks or whatever, usually in the form of some kind of non-acceptance or shame. Now, people think they shouldn't have the problem in the first place. And this gets back to the idea of tolerating it. If we can come to understand of what kind of things are influencing our anxiety, the triggers for it, and we have some kind of understanding of, or acceptance of how we might have developed that problem in the first place, and we're a bit forgiving of ourselves and a bit compassionate for ourselves or whatever, then often it's easier to learn strategies to not get too anxious about the anxiety, or not too distressed about it, or not too judgmental about oneself you know, uh, for that, not too ashamed of it, so to speak. Because if we're dealing with anxiety in itself without being overly self-critical or judgy, if you like, then there are lots of strategies that can be really helpful for helping reduce the anxiety and not just getting caught up in that helplessness. Well, in that way, what are your thoughts then on the best ways to approach, say, friends and family who are dealing with anxiety? Because we don't necessarily want to contribute to 
a sort of maybe a negative narrative that they have going in their head. They may be feeling like they want to withdraw from everyone. For example, if someone's sort of in their bedroom and and not wanting to socialise for that day, is it best to try and draw them out and almost integrate them with a more collective positivity? Or is it best to almost not try and get in the way and then potentially... potentially sort of embarrass them to to sort of put the extra attention on the way that they're feeling negative or any of that sort of stuff. What's the best way there in terms of finding that balance of, I suppose, supporting someone but not wanting to be too overly prescriptive to get them out of it? Okay, look, that's a good question to reflect on because there's going to be a different balance in different situations and it can be tricky to try and uh, get it right, so to speak. And so one of the first things for family members and people who love someone, uh, friends of people who have a significant anxiety problem, one thing is to take the pressure off and realise that one of the things that really helps people with any kind of mental health problem is social support. So the first thing is to be a friend. The first thing is to be a loving family member. That in itself counts for a lot of social support in the normal things that you would do. And look, later on we'll come back to it as well with character strengths. See the good in other people, see their strengths. When we recognise the character strengths in each other, that in itself is affirming and bolstering. But just say apart from that, if you think someone's being pretty withdrawn, for example, or they're feeling... Well, first of all, if, if people were feeling overwhelmed with anxiety and you could see that they weren't functioning at all well and they're very distressed, I think encouraging people to seek some help you know, with that in the first place is worthwhile to do. That can be done without stigma. It can be done in a, a caring way. It could be saying, hey, look, I, I noticed that you seem to be you know, a lot more worried or stressed than usual. Have you thought about maybe getting some extra help with that? Because maybe there are ways that will work for you pretty well. So I think that encouraging people, if you can see that they're especially much more distressed than usual or functioning much worse than usual, that can be a worthwhile thing to do, encouraging them, for example, to see their GP or something like that. But beyond that, I think looking to engage people when there are the opportunities that that we have, recognising that when people are anxious, especially long-term, then they might tend to be a bit withdrawn. So looking to engage people where there are opportunities, that could be good, but also recognising sometimes people need their own space. Sometimes people are kind of, well, almost recuperating in a way. They feel overwhelmed and and at times just like a wounded animal might go off by itself to recuperate. When people feel really overwhelmed with stress, often they will prefer to retreat to their bedroom for a period of time. So it's also being sensitive to when people feel like having their own space. But I think like you're suggesting, trying to do what we can to see people don't become too isolated. So how do you differentiate between giving someone the space that they potentially need for that moment and it almost sounds to me a little bit like you're advocating there for some form of intervention, even if it's just a suggestion of of doing something with someone. How do you identify when it's best to leave someone alone? Because I'm just thinking, you know, someone might, you know, I'm thinking back to uni days on res, someone might spend a a day in their bedroom, maybe two days in their bedroom. You sort of go, you know, let's let's go kick the footy, let's go for a skate or something. And they might say, oh, look, I, I just really want to kind of be by myself at the moment. And that, as you say, like they, they might sort of be looking for their, uh, yeah, their, their own space at that time. But also as a friend, 
it sounds like it is maybe a little bit best to try and encourage someone to get out of that situation. So are there any, I guess, say, indicators that someone's sort of doing it maybe a little bit more tough than than we realise? Well, the first thing is just to have that interest and care in the first place is that that's a great start. Just even that question that you ask shows an interest in other people and how they're faring. So just trust in the fact that when we do care about other people, that will come across in, in different kind of ways. But I think it's a little bit like you were suggesting. One thing is we use our intuition. We just get a sense of, look, you know, do I, is it best to maybe let that person have a bit more space? Hey, do I feel like, no, it's, it's really worth engaging them a, a bit? To some extent, our intuition is going to guide us as well as anything else. But then you mentioned also like a time frame. So if it's a day or two, we notice a friend being more withdrawn, well, they might be working through some significant conflict. It might be another relationship that we're not aware about that they're having a struggle with or a particular kind of worry. And if it's a briefish period of time, then I think then letting people have that bit of space, but like you say, maybe engage them for a kick of footy or something else, some other uh, catch up for a cup of tea. If we notice people are a bit more withdrawn, I think putting out those off offers a little bit more frequently but if we notice it persisting over time and we really get a sense that there's a change in someone there's a noticeable change that seems to be lasting more than a day or two then I think it can be a very caring act to say to someone just something like oh look if it's okay to mention it it just seems to me that you're not your usual self in the last week or so and look I hope it's okay for me to ask but you know are you okay because it seems to me that you know, you've been keeping your room more, you haven't joined us when we've had these social things in uh, happening. Um, normally ask you for a kick of footy and you come out you know, straight away and I notice you haven't been doing it. So look, is it okay to ask you, look, are you okay? And people will pick up the well-meaning tone of that and they might not even be immediately ready to respond to it, but it's kind of like broken the ice. And that's part of the idea of having the are you okay day asking people straight out if they're okay, but still using our sensitivity when we ask it. But if we ask it, I'd say if we ask it with a good heart, then the person's going to tend to pick up that goodwill. And even if they're not ready to talk just then, they might be a little bit more ready to open up later on or or consider the prospect of going and seeing their GP or following up in some way. Well, that's an interesting point you make there. And Look, it's something that uh, I guess we'll probably talk a little bit more about this on the next episode, but when I was at uh, university, I experienced the uh, the suicide of, of a best mate sort of thing, and uh, it was obviously a sort of horribly distressing situation for everyone, but one thing that really came out of that whole situation was everyone's ability to ask that question to each other, and yeah, I sort of found, you know, when, when my mate Drew died, everyone had such nuanced observations about him and about, you know, ways he was feeling on a certain day. And I think so often that we do pick up on that sort of stuff, but we may not even sort of realise even the degree to which we're picking up on it, the degree to which someone maybe has been a bit more absent than usual. And I think if we're going to intervene with someone, that's where the character strengths come in is such a good thing. Because if you're going to I suppose, in many ways, make it a unilateral intervention on someone's life, which is potentially what you're doing in some ways, you want to be kind of positive about it. And that's where if you're thinking in terms of the character strengths and you can sort of say to someone, look, you know, I recognise you haven't sort of come out of your room, but do you want maybe say they've got perspective as a higher strength? Do you want to just sit together and watch a doco and have a bit of a chat about it or something? Or 
like there's ways of using the character strengths to really individualize that support that you do offer to people and I think that's where or for me anyway that's one of the greatest things that the character strengths does offer us because when there are situations that are potentially a bit more for lack of a better term precarious we don't necessarily want to kind of go in all guns blazing and imprint ourselves on a situation where someone's potentially already feeling negative but the character strengths can really be a tool to think of how can I position this in a way that's going to be positive for them and it's not going to be we notice that you're feeling bad I want you to feel better so you can come and be a part of the group and I think that goes back to the idea of coming from the right place and coming from the place with a good heart and so, yeah, so I think that's where, where the character strengths offer us so much in that. Yes, yeah, so, and what you're bringing up and, and such a sad and tragic situation that you describe and, uh, and I remember well how naturally that affected so many people in your friendship group, including you, you, yourself, and the, the ripple effects of, of like a, someone taking their, their life. That really reminds us that we, we're a collective. It, it's a we it's not just people individually. And as much as psychology often focuses on individual interventions, and even when we talk about character strengths, like we do on this podcast, we often are talking about it in an individual sense. But I think what you're talking about shows the importance of a collective. And I think that one of the things that this means is just say if in a friendship group you notice that someone doesn't seem their usual self, one of the best things I think that can happen is talk to other close friends of that person and ask them, hey, look, I'm a bit concerned about so-and-so. It seems to me that they haven't been their usual selves. And the other person might say, yeah, look, I've noticed that too. Or they might say, oh, no, look, I've actually spent the weekend with them and they were just fine. And, and then we might be a little bit relieved, if you like. But I think that notion of a collective, so if in a family, if in a family we think that someone's out of sorts, for the other members of the family together to look at how they can be a social support for that person, because it can be very confronting for someone if, if someone tells them that it looks like that they're you know, reacting badly in some way, that can just add to the stigma or the difficulty. But if the other people collectively show an interest in that person, care and offer the social support and maybe even more than one person might make an observation, look, are you okay? It just seems to me not so much your usual self. Normally you're like this, now it seems a bit like that. If ever you want to talk about anything or if there's any way I can help, please let me know. The thing is to help people stay connected because your very example itself shows how important it is for human beings for us to be connected with other people and to be tuned in with each other. In that way, do you have any tips then in terms of accepting support? Because someone in a situation where they're potentially feeling anxious, they're potentially projecting negative perceptions of others onto themselves. So I just think of a, a few examples of sort of friends and stuff who I think would potentially sort of, you know, admit that they're not the best at sort of accepting support sometimes. So how do I suppose you get around potentially that idea of, of not wanting to accept the support that's offered to you? Look, that, that is such a, a core challenge for us as human beings in a society where we tend to associate strength and emotional strength with a sense of a of stoic style, a strong upper lip, being able to handle just about any kind of uh, situation. That's often how we think of, of strength. But, but I think of it differently as a psychologist, and you learn this early on when you see people um, 
I learned this a lot in my first year or two, what you'd notice again is that two levels of difficulty people would have. There's the problem they have and then there's their non-acceptance or shame of the problem. So this is the way I tended to put it to people that we're talking about the notion of strength. It's really about security or insecurity. And it comes back to this, that as human beings, we're all vulnerable. Vulnerable means that we can be hurt, but also we can be touched. It's got the positive side as well as the negative side. Like the, the difference between humans and robots is we have that vulnerability. We can be hurt and we can be touched. Now, what emotional security is, is accepting that vulnerability, accepting we can be hurt, we can be touched, we can be in touch with that human side of ourselves. But there are two ways that people can be insecure and not accept their vulnerability. One form of insecurity is thinking, look, I feel bad, I feel hurt, and I can't stand it. But another way of experiencing that insecurity is, oh, I'm not hurt. Now, this isn't going to affect me. Oh, I'm on top of this. Oh, there might be all the stress in the world, but no, I'm okay. And that's actually not strength. That's insecurity. Because to me, emotional security is being able to accept our vulnerability, which is, look, I might feel I might feel bad, I might feel a bit overwhelmed at times or whatever, but I can manage with that. And I can be open to drawing on the support of other people. So it's partly how we define strength or think of that. And so I think a core of dealing with anxiety and, and uh, difficulties generally is ourselves learning to accept our vulnerability, which I should add, I found that very difficult as a young man. We'll talk about this more in the next episode with depression, but I went through a couple of depressions in my earlier life and a lot of it was because of expectations I had on myself and uh, a difficulty accepting that, that vulnerability and thinking I should be on top of things. So we might talk about more some of those themes next time as well, but ultimately it's a sign of being enlightened to be open to the support of other people and that's one of the best things I gained from going through a tough time. I learnt to accept the love and the goodwill of others when I needed that help from others and it made it easier from then on. Well, I think it's, it's actually been quite interesting being a bloke at sort of this time because even when I was maybe at school sort of thing which really wasn't that long ago I think there was potentially some different perceptions out there around masculinity and strength and as you say we, I think we will get into a little bit of this more on on the next episode but from what you've described there I wonder if that's part of the reason why alcohol is seen as I suppose an escape from anxiety from anxious feelings at times spoken about how I believe it's one in five people in Australia have uh, admitted to buying more alcohol since COVID started. So is that where people's looking for those kind of self-medicating ways out of, of feeling anxious? Is that where that potentially comes in because you don't have to deal with that vulnerability as head on? Yeah, look, look, I think that really ties in and it's also a form of avoidance. So basically when people really get into difficulty with anxiety, it's when they build different kinds of avoidance. Like it might be from panic attacks and then, so oh, I won't go and drive my car or go to the supermarket in case I have a panic attack or whatever, there's that avoidance. Or with trauma reactions, people think, I'm not going to think about that car accident that I had or process my feelings about it because it's too overwhelming for me. And then it tends to persist more as, as post-traumatic stress. Now, self-medicating for anxiety also is a form of avoidance. It's like a form of avoidance through numbing. 
It's a form of anaesthetising oneself, which also can happen with eating disorders. People can be, say, binge eating as a way of anaesthetising themselves. There are even aspects for self-harming behaviour, quite frankly, that can reduce arousal, surprisingly enough, or counterintuitively. But if we get into patterns of just looking to avoid to block out, to numb, to avoid or whatever, then we're not actually dealing with or processing the feelings. And all the effective ways of dealing with anxiety have something to do with letting go. Some kind of accepting vulnerability, letting go, taking a bit of pressure off ourselves, the perfectionistic standards we might put on, taking a little bit of time out for leisure, letting go muscle tension literally through relaxation techniques or, or yoga or something like that. So letting go is a big part of managing with it well. Well, if we're looking at that idea of avoiding something, again, the character strengths are going to be something that really helps us to engage in in what we need to there but just before we get into the sort of positive psychology kind of therapy techniques one thing we've spoken about on this podcast before is recognizing the times when positive psychology almost needs to defer to mainstream psychology so before we get into the character strengths and how they can particularly apply here is there anything from mainstream psychology that you would even look at before looking at the character strengths Yes, generally there would be. And first of all, they're the overall strategies that tend to help with anxiety, like physical exercise we've talked about. I mentioned before something like relaxation or meditation techniques. They can be worthwhile. There are different strategies around coping self-statements or coping self-talk that can make a difference. There are also situations where people might have a condition like post-traumatic stress disorder and it's worthwhile having a specific therapy that, for example, helps people relive the experience of the trauma to, we call it exposure, exposure to trauma memories and processing them in a certain way that takes the heat, the emotional heat out of these memories. So there are a range of conventional techniques that we would often use first, but I will mention a technique which we actually have a video of this on our website, which I think is such a wonderful technique for dealing with worry and dealing with panicky feelings, including physical, somatic or bodily sensations associated with stress. And it's called bilateral stimulation. And strangely enough, if we use a particular technique which stimulates one side of our brain and then the other, we call this bilateral stimulation, one side of the brain and then the other, such as having a click in one ear and then in the other, like a click, 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 click with headphones on. We've demonstrated this in a bilateral stimulation video, therapy video on the website. And actually we created this video partly because of lockdown so that we could have a video that people can access from their homes. They can get a computer link and see how they can apply this. They can download an app on their phone and uh, it's only about an $8 app. And if people follow that video, they'll see how you can use this stimulation even over a period of minutes and see if it helps settle your level of worry, your somatic distress. It's something that tends to reduce our thoughts and it seems more than just distraction. It tends to dial down our arousal or our anxiety. And if people were to experiment with that app to see if they're dealing with worry or some physical discomfort associated with anxiety, many people find that surprisingly helpful. 
And so how does it help? So does, for example, do the thoughts go away? Do they just become sort of less anxious in terms of the way that you feel about them? How, how does it sort of work? Well, well, when it boils down to how it actually works, it's still a bit of a mystery. However, it seems to reduce activity in the parts of the brain that mediate arousal. So those parts of our brain that are to do with fight, flight and freeze, it seems to reduce activity in those parts of the brain. And so it brings down our arousal level, even if we're thinking of something which we're a little bit worried about. So it's not merely distraction because we can find that our anxiety settles and our arousal settles even whilst we're thinking about the troublesome thoughts even whilst we have the worry in mind. So it's not just distraction, but for a number of people, even having these clicks in one ear and then the other, there is something distracting about that that also tends to reduce people's thoughts. Also a very worthwhile thing for many people, it might be, say, half an hour or an hour before bedtime to reduce one's thoughts that might help in a way for getting to sleep. But I'd really encourage people who are experiencing worry or some kind of physical or somatic anxiety to check out that video uh, the bilateral stimulation video, because I think it's one of the most useful things I've ever encountered in my career for helping deal with anxiety is just a single technique. So we usually use a range of techniques together, but I would certainly encourage people to explore or experiment with that one using their curiosity. Well, it sounds like if we go back to that idea that anxiety leads us to avoid things a little bit more, potentially something like that that's going to help us process our thoughts a little bit more, even if they are potentially anxious thoughts, is going to help us to avoid avoiding, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, I think that also leads us nicely into the character strengths now, because as we've sort of alluded to a little bit, the character strengths are something as well that can really help us to engage with some of the feelings that are causing us to be anxious and help us to, I suppose, deal with some of those feelings in a, in a way that's going to be beneficial and productive rather than, I suppose, just alleviating the symptoms as we would with sort of alcohol or as potentially psychology was sort of looking to do for, for a very long time. So we look at the, the wisdom character strengths how do you think they relate to anxiety? Okay, the wisdom character strengths. Well, one thing is with our curiosity and our love of learning, maybe we can research up a bit about anxiety and common signs and symptoms and then reflect on that for ourselves and reflect on our own stress signature. Just reflecting on how do we relate to these common signs of anxiety? Like what do we tend to notice when we're mildly distressed? Oh, maybe our concentration is a bit affected. What if we're moderately affected? Well, I feel more tense, uh, my gut's affected a little bit, uh, tend to be more irritable. What if you're more severely affected? Well, uh, difficulty getting to sleep and waking up during the night, tend to have more arguments with other people, tend to be more socially withdrawn. If we kind of reflect on our own stress signatures, so we kind of individualise where we're at, you know, gauge where we're at in terms of our own anxiety. Then another one that comes up a lot is um, judgment and perspective. A whole lot of psychological therapy is encouraging people to stand back from their reactions and picking up on some of their thinking behind their reactions. That's why we call it cognitive behavioural therapy. Looking at how we act and how we feel and looking at the cognitive side. What are our thoughts or beliefs that are influencing our reactions? So we might realise, well, I'm having the thought 
that I'm likely to lose my job. I'm having the thought that I might well get sick and and also everybody in my workplace, if we go back after lockdown, is going to have to leave because I'll be sick or something like that. We, we can think of the worries and get carried away with them. Whereas if we can step back and take perspective and think of things that we can do to help prevent bad things happening, so to speak, or reduce the risk, then that can help reduce worries or panic about a situation. It helps us take that distance. And then finally, I'd say creativity Anything that we do which is creative, where we're using that adaptiveness and that ingenuity, it's almost the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety is when we get stuck and rigid and our perspective narrows down, whereas when we're being creative, we've almost always got what we call an orientation reflex. An orientation reflex means like your chin's up, your eyes are looking forward, you're looking out to the world, you're open to new experiences. And when we act on creativity and we're encouraging that originality, that openness, that adaptiveness, that ingenuity, then that's almost like an anxiety antidote in itself. And how about courage? Well, again, I see zest. And so if someone has that as a top strength, then great for physical exercise, really draw on that all all that you can. Then, well, bravery and perseverance Like we were talking before and like you were emphasising, it's actually not about expunging anxiety, isn't it? It's not about eliminating it. It's about processing it in some way. It's about working through it. And that takes courage. And it often takes perseverance. When people are dealing with phobias, so exaggerated fears of whether it be uh, driving and having a panic attack or heights or whatever, perseverance really comes into it. It's about facing the situation again and again and again and staying there without merely fleeing and staying there to the point where our anxiety, especially our exaggerated anxiety, comes down. And then we can see that, okay, look, look, I feel very nervous, I feel uncomfortable, I feel fearful, but if I stay in the situation, I notice eventually my anxiety comes down. Maybe it's not so dangerous as I thought. So that's when dealing with phobias. And, um, and I suppose honesty looking to be honest with ourselves about whether we are avoiding anxiety or self-medicating and trying to numb ourselves with alcohol or whatever. Being honest with ourselves helps us find a balance in our behaviour. Just a a thought I just had, a bit of a question without notice here, but does anxiety lead us to rely on our character strengths more in the sense that we're potentially feeling more anxious so we're going to rely on the, for lack of a better term, the infrastructure that we already have in place or does it potentially lead us to almost second guess our top strengths and potentially be less likely to implement them? Well, unfortunately, I think that when we're anxious, we're less likely to be aware of and to use our top strengths because when we're anxious and we get into that fight, flight, freeze reaction – we're acting at a more mammalian or even reptilian level. It takes us back to our more primitive ways of dealing with things. And, and when we think of the times we've been most stressed or overwhelmed in our lives, we might reflect on the way we handled things at the time. We might not feel so proud of or we might look back and realise that we're drawing on more primitive coping mechanisms, if you like. So more the, the fight, flight, freeze things. So unfortunately, when we're very anxious our frontal lobes tend to switch off. We're all limbic system, fight, flight, freeze, especially when we're panicky. 
and our frontal lobes, our higher levels of thinking that separates us from particularly reptiles and, and, and even other mammals, that tends to go offline. So we're not so aware of our creativity or curiosity or able to apply our honesty or whatever. And that's one reason why it helps to manage stresses generally, have good routines, have good ways of like self-care building in exercise, good sleep, all these things, because then we're more likely to be managing with stresses where we keep our frontal lobe switched on and we can more choose these higher level ways of dealing with things. Well, that's where the humanity character strengths could potentially come in there, couldn't it? Even in terms of potentially repairing relationships where you've acted out against someone through feeling anxious. Very much so. Like when we talk about fight and flight responses, well, it can literally mean fight. And, and, and remember even the, the, the scenes of people in supermarket aisles literally fighting over toilet paper. Now, that, that, that's a reptilian kind of response there. There wasn't much love there or kindness or social intelligence in those kind of situations. Um, people were, were reacting with that more panicky kind of anxiety. So, yeah, recognising those humanity strengths. It's to do with also social support. It's compassion for other people. It can also be compassion for ourselves. We can also use kindness towards ourselves. We can also apply our social intelligence to look at not only what others need, but also what we need to help get by. So, yeah, those strengths, love, kindness, social intelligence, really help us gauge and and, and go better in how we interact with the people around us. And it seems to me that if we talk about anxiety in terms of threat, potentially the justice character strengths don't necessarily lend themselves to help out as much because potentially as we're feeling anxious, we'd be less likely to rely on our justice character strengths. Yeah, but I suppose if we look at it in terms of the interpersonal situation, like we might be with our family at home, for example, And now let's think of just say with a family, we might have a number of people living together. So think in terms of teamwork, fairness and leadership. This is using our empathy and our connection and our care for others. Leadership could be, well, say, organising group activities, playing board games, uh, encouraging people to go for a walk together. So engaging as a group or doing something as a group too, like figuring out as a group how you're going to use teamwork to, I don't know, it might be do the washing up together or uh, manage with household chores or it might be working out how we're going to use our spaces or computers or TV screens so we share them fairly so fairness can come in. So I think that the justice strengths, it just shows how we can manage things better, manage stress better often as a group when we're thinking of the people around us. Other people matter, as we say in positive psychology. And how about temperance? Well, let's see, things like prudence and self-regulation, well, that could be very helpful in this situation for taking care with COVID if we know that we're using our prudence and our self-regulation, physical distancing and things like that. We could be more confident that we're less likely to be sick and things like that, so maybe act with more confidence even in returning to workplaces or whatever, realising that we have scope to have more freedom and still be careful, so it can help that way. Mind you, I'll just mention too, there are examples where there's a risk of overusing our top strengths with anxiety. If we're overly cautious and avoid situations or overly 
self-regulating, if you like, and, and not taking any risks in terms of facing our anxiety. In those situations, then we might get into avoidance and make it worse. But generally, they're, they're very helpful things. Forgiveness, humility, we'll just say with um, forgiveness, I think being forgiving with ourselves if we have some kind of lapse in how we manage with anxiety or being forgiving with ourselves if we're not managing the stresses as ideally as we would wish to and especially being forgiving of the people around us if they're struggling too. And finally, how about the transcendence list of character strengths? Well, there's some really worthwhile ones here and just generally say appreciation of beauty and excellence. Well, when we do have more scope as we're likely to soon with lockdown measures easing in some ways, getting out amongst nature, going for a walk, bush walks are fantastic. Actually, if we're out amongst nature, that in itself will tend to reduce our cortisol levels and bolster our serotonin, for example. And so that's one of the wonderful things. If we have that as a character strength, then that's likely to lead us to have positive emotions, which in turn reduces anxiety. But then let's look at the other ones. Hope, that's very helpful. An optimistic attitude is very worthwhile for being forward-looking and not getting too caught up with future worries or anticipatory anxieties, we call it. Uh, Gratitude. For example, the three blessings exercise in positive psychology at the end of the day, thinking back of three things that went well that day, like some of the beautiful sunrises we're having lately, or it might be a funny video we saw that a friend posted, or it might be that we got through a work task, even though we're working at home under difficult circumstances, and we're glad how that went. Exercising gratitude is a wonderful way of building positive emotions, which again eases stress. And then I'll highlight the last couple, humour, spirituality. Humour is a wonderful way of dealing with stress. And when people share that with others in a group setting, all the better. But it's one of the highest level or more mature ways often of managing with anxiety is bringing our sense of humour into things. And especially if it's something which pleases other people around us as well. And then I'll mention spirituality. I've said a number of times that I think that spirituality or acknowledging a spiritual dimension in life is one of the areas where psychology generally has the most room to develop in coming years. Actually, I think that'll be the biggest development in psychology in the next 10 years will be more of an appreciation of acknowledging a spiritual dimension in life, how that can help our well-being. And that's based on long research, which shows that when people have spiritual beliefs, which can include being religious... But it doesn't mean having to just be religious. Many people might have a sense of there being some larger consciousness in the universe. They might say the universe provides, meaning that often it's as though there's some kind of benevolent kind of force in the universe, even if we don't think of that particularly in terms of of a God. Spirituality is also to do with purpose and meaning. And when we bring that into our uh, family life or our work, So we see that our work or family life is having a sacred quality if our work is like a calling or we feel that our primary relationship, how we met our partner was meant to be. These are kind of sacred qualities or spiritual qualities that we can uh, imbue to a relationship. We know that when people have spiritual beliefs, then they tend to fare better with stress. And so we're certainly facing that collectively When people believe in a higher benevolent consciousness in some way, that helps people get better through very testing times. 
Well, it seems to me that the character strengths can be used on a number of different levels in a number of different ways in the sense that they can be used to to reframe things, to change your outlook. They can be used to help to draw on supports and to support other people. But for me, I guess, and, you know, as someone who's, you know, experienced periods of anxiety and stuff before, if there's nothing else that they give you, it's an engagement with life that motivates you to do something about it in the sense that potentially anxiety is something that's going to draw you away from engaging in life, engaging in people and the relationships around you. So the character strengths are almost, even though it can seem a little bit elementary at times for me anyway, it is just such a good way of bringing things back to the positive and reminding you that there is something there that's going to be worth putting in the effort for. Yes, yeah, so the way you put that, it reminds me of how they describe it in positive psychology that um, Barbara Fredrickson describes how focusing on positive emotions, and this includes focusing on our character strengths, it helps us broaden and build the resources in our life. Rather than just being driven by a fight-flight response, which helps us survive through evolution by escaping danger, but another thing that helps evolution is where we turn towards novelty and creativity. So when we focus on positive emotions, including noticing our character strengths and using them, that helps us broaden our resources, our skills. It helps us build our resources in different ways, including in interaction with other people. So I think that what you've emphasised with that, that our character strengths help us engage with life. And that also ties in with Seligman's key themes with positive psychology when he pioneered the field. He said that, well, we could do things that give us a, a pleasurable life, you know, through hedonism and drinking and gambling and whatever kind of thing. We can go for a hedonistic lifestyle or we can go for an engaged life. Engaged life is using our, our strengths and that includes our character strengths as well as our skills, but also we can go for a meaningful life. And a meaningful life is not only an engaged life, but it's where we use our resources, when we use our skills and strengths in the service of other people. And I think that's the, that, that, that's the spiritual dimension again of thinking about how we relate to other people. And I noticed through this podcast, when we talk about different kind of aspects of character strengths, it's just even increasing my awareness of how much it's worth thinking about how we use our strengths in interaction with other people. It's not just an individual thing. Well, that might be a good point to leave it for today. And it seems to me that that one of the main themes of today's episode really has been about that idea of not completely eliminating anxiety and recognising that the situation that we're all in is going to be a bit anxiety-provoking in many ways. So if we can all find a way to tolerate it where we can and just sit with it a little bit more and support each other through, then I think we're going to make this period a lot easier for us all to deal with. So we'll put up all the resources that we've mentioned up on the website at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. We've got all the individual episode pages up now too. So feel free to check those out. And yeah, Dad, thanks for joining me today. It's been good. Yeah, thank you, Rowan. And look, I might mention I really like the way that you've done the individual episodes on the website there. And so it makes it more accessible around the different themes. And also I'll say, look, strangely enough, I'm looking forward to our next episode talking about depression, which sounds a bit strange because, well, we've both had some experience of depression in the past. And so it's certainly not fun at the time, but I look forward to that episode and having a conversation with you about that.